we don't have to have all this data gathering and all this proof. We can just take that from other industries. I mean, why did the oil and gas industry change? Well, because it learned from the nuclear industry. Who did the nuclear industry learn from? Learned from the aviation industry in the 1940s. So I'd say that in a hospital setting, you don't need to gather all this data. You can bring information in from other industries and you can tell stories from the hospital setting that will make it relevant to people. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Welcome to the 70th episode of the Emergency Mind Podcast. Now, this episode is really an important one, and there's a ton to learn here. Our guest is Diane Chadwick-Jones, who comes to the Emergency Mind Project from the oil and gas industry, where she was formerly the Director of Human Performance at BP. Diane is a graduate of Imperial College London and has a career spanning BP businesses and functions, including exploration and production, refining and chemicals, working all the way around the world, including Belgium, Brazil, and Egypt in operations and safety roles. In her positions related to safety culture and human performance, Diane refreshed the BP values, delivering cultural change to better enable safety performance. This included operationalizing a systems thinking approach by improving the way work is set up to reduce the possibility of mistakes and make work more effective. Now, I just want to say that again, reduce the possibility of mistakes and make work more effective. That is really what we're going to concentrate on here is what is safety and what are we doing? So so currently, Diane focuses on education, mentoring, and advocacy related to modernizing safety. In this episode, we're going to talk about safety one versus safety two, the role of certainty and learning, the importance of understanding work is done versus work is imagined, and methods for building a highly resilient and robust working culture. There is a ton in here that applies to high-performing teams across domains who want to build systems that help them get as many things as possible right in complex, high-impact environments. Before we jump in, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Shannon McNamara, and it comes conversations with Dr. McNamara really helped me set up the foundation for this episode, and I'd encourage you to check out her appearance on episode 63 of this podcast if you haven't already. Also, a reminder, if you're looking for more ways to directly support the Emergency Mind podcast, you can head to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash emergency mind. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash emergency mind, and consider making any sort of a contribution if you feel so inclined. Of course, the best way to help the Emergency Mind project is to go out in the world and do the work right? To get better at performing under pressure and to advance your field. All right. All that said, let's dive into episode 70 with Diane Chadwick-Jones. I hope you enjoy. Diane, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. I have been seriously looking forward to having you on. I think there's just so much rich stuff to dig into here. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you, Dan. I've been listening to some of your episodes and I'm really looking forward to contributing to what you're doing. Can we start out for folks that don't know you as well? Can you give everybody just a 30,000 foot overview of, of who you are and, and what you do these days? So I'm Diane Chadwick-Jones. I worked in BP for 30 years in the operations, but also in, in safety. And what I did in BP was, was part of the effort to revolutionize how we saw safety and move away from blaming towards learning to move away from just responding to when incidents happen, to learn from that, instead going and looking at everyday work. I've retired from BP, and now what I do is I do mentoring, and I do a little bit of consultancy, and I basically am working on just keeping the conversation going around modernizing safety. 
Hmm. Let's just start there. What, and this is something that I, you know, before I started really thinking about it, I was like, oh, of course I know the answer to this question. And now the more that I think about it, I'm like, uh, maybe I do. What is safety? Well, it is the ability to be able to do activities to a level of quality that enables things to go smoothly. However, in every case, there will be workarounds and good catches. So it's also about the ability to adapt. And that's why I said capacity. That's why I also talk about capacity, because capacity is about having the resources. So if you're in an emergency situation, but yet, and you need three people to do the job, but you've only got one, then that means that it's much more difficult to adapt, for example. Okay. So safety as we're sort of classically taught in medicine is just not having bad things happen. Right. And, and that's the, the model we get when we're training is some version of like, you know, being safe uh, is measured in not having people get hurt. And as long as that happens, things are working great. And that's a very, from what I've been learning and from what I would have been talking with you about before we started about this, that's a very seemingly sort of like narrow minded and really only partially correct view. Am I reading that right? Well, yes, because if we took just that interpretation, and I think that interpretation probably worked many years ago when we were less sophisticated, but as the ability to make things safe has improved, we have a higher bar. And so just waiting for things to go wrong means that there is a lot of loss of opportunity to learn. And what I mean, for example, in the oil industry, we used to have many incidents happen. And through many different types of efforts, like, for example, improving the, the systems, improving the training, improving the equipment, we have a lot less incidents happen. So, can you imagine if we just waited for mm. a catastrophic event to happen, we would not be understanding all the weaknesses that are there waiting to combine to turn into event. So, we don't want to be surprised by something terrible happening. So, if I give you an analogy. So, imagine that you're a soccer coach and what you're doing is you're just looking at the scoreboard, okay? And it's a nil-nil draw. If it's one, then it's a goal, then that's that's an incident because it's everything, you know, the ball has got through all the defenses. Gotcha. But, okay. but you could have a match where it's a nil-nil draw, a, a soccer match where there's people on the, you know, there's 22 people on the pitch. There's all those good saves. There's those passes. There's those tackles. There's those missed goals. All those things are happening. But yet you, the soccer coach, you're just looking at the scoreboard. And so that's the way to think about if we're waiting for failure to learn, if we're just waiting for an incident. Gotcha. So, so you're saying that in that analogy, waiting for a, a sentinel event or waiting for something like that to happen is really only looking at the scoreboard and missing the complexity and the underlying systems and the teamwork and everything else that's sort of going on on the field. And that's about right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Ah, so interesting. When did you first get exposed to that idea? And what was it that brought you to think about it differently that way? Well, it happened a while ago, but it didn't come to me from reading about it. Mm -hmm. How it came to me was that, so I worked for 15 years in the operations and I always kind of wondered why things happened the way they did. And I always felt that 
we were only seeing part of what was happening. And I always felt that we did a lot of measuring in terms of incidents and near misses. But actually, that's not where it came to me. It came Mm. to me when I was working on a program of going and speaking to workers about their reality and about what I used to ask a question. If you were the site manager, what would you do around here to improve safety? And what I saw was all the enormous complexity, all the hidden issues that were happening, that there was a big difference between what we thought was going on and what was actually going on. So, for example, scaffolding is a big thing in the oil industry. So, the workers will say, well, actually, we need four people to construct this scaffold safely. But in fact, we usually only have two. And when we complain to our contractor manager, they say, well, actually, just do the best you can under the circumstances. And then, of course, we have an incident with a scaffold. And then we wonder why it is that this problem happened. And then, of course, there's blame, you know, that the the person who dropped the pipe from the scaffold, that they weren't paying attention or they weren't trying hard enough or they weren't trained properly. But really, this was known by the workers weeks in advance. But because there's always this feeling of, well, we just have to do the best we can under the circumstances, that people just struggled on. And that is what I learned, is that that people do the best they can under the circumstances they struggle on. And there's relatively few opportunities to take a time out and to say, well, actually, we are not creating safety here. All the things that we need to make this activity safe, we're missing some of those. Well, that example really hits home. I think that all of us in the emergency medicine world who for the last several years with the pandemic and everything else going on have been told routinely by every hospital system that I've ever interacted with and, and my teammates as well to just, just do the best you can with what you have. And that's part of the ethos of emergency medicine really is to do the best you can with what you have, right? There's this sort of core identity component to it that like, well, we are the people who do the best we can with what we have. We struggle on, as you said, and we like to adapt and operate in uncertain and uh, suboptimal circumstances. It's almost a rallying cry from us. But at the same time, to consider what you said, well, like, what do we actually know about the safety of what we're doing? That's a really poignant example there. I wonder if you found a a similar thing to that when you were talking to these folks, right? Was there this, hey, we need this other set of tools. We don't have it, but we are the people who soldier on and like, we're proud of this workaround. Or was there more a sense of like, listen, nobody's listening to us when we need this other thing? I think it's both. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of pride in terms of being able to complete the work without needing more help. But what actually happened within BP and within other companies in the oil industry was the understanding that we had to move on from that. We had to move on from it. And there are many leaders in different companies, not just BP, but other companies like Shell and Chevron, who thought, right, well, actually what we're we're going to do is we're going to listen to the workforce and and, and make some changes. I think one of the, the first times I was involved in this was in one of these projects where I was listening to the workforce and I brought their reality to the senior leaders of the site. And there was an, a situation where there was going to be a big lift of a large vessel 
over a high pressure unit, a big production unit in a refinery that was running, which was crucial to the use of the refinery. And people who were doing the lifting with the crane felt very uncomfortable about this. And they said, well, don't want to do this. And the operations manager of this company, which is not a BP company, said, well, we have to shut the plant down unless we do this. And But they kept on saying, well, you know, something catastrophic will happen if there's an incident with this lift. And in the end, the site manager said, right, okay, no, we're not going to continue with this. We will shut down and isolate that high pressure unit, and then we will do the lift. And that did make a big difference at that site because what happens is people kind of struggle on and they've got pride in struggling on because they think there's no alternative. When people know there's an alternative where the senior leaders are going, well, actually, we know that there's a possibility of something catastrophic happening if we continue down this road, then there's a a shift in the level of speak up in the organization, the level of psychological safety in the organization. And it happens quite gradually. But what I saw is that in money companies, the leaders started talking about, we don't want you to carry on struggling on. We don't want you to just struggle on. We want you to talk to us. We want to see the reality that you see. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it was a bit of a surprise because people actually were going, well, is this real? Is this, is this is this real? I mean, you know, what happens if I talk about this workaround that I'm doing, or this, you know, not following this rule because because it's just not possible to follow this rule. So I, I just have to carry on. You know, there's a thing to do with um, isolating equipment, and you have to isolate equipment with two different isolation points, and it all has to be totally depressurized and totally safe. But a lot of the times, it's not possible to have two separate isolations at one end of the pipe and the other end of the pipe. Sometimes it's not possible to do that because there's leaking valves. And people used to just do the best they could. And then it became clear to them that if they actually said, well, it's not possible to do this because there's an issue with leaking valves, that they'd be listened to and that they wouldn't be punished. They're like, oh, okay, well, and and it just got more and more workarounds and issues were surfaced over time because there was a building of trust. And what actually caused that building of trust? The leader saying, we don't want you to struggle on and you can tell us anything and we won't be angry. And so, they were responding in a supportive way to these admissions of people having to do workarounds, which is quite a big deal. This is so interesting, right? So we talk a lot on this podcast about building high-performing teams and organizations, and in addition to individuals. And we talk a lot about what the components are that go into that culture. And I don't think we've explicitly called this one out before, right? Because what you're saying is that the leadership and as a result of the culture of the place should be to ask the most frontline folks how they actually do their work. Like what is not work is imagined, but work is done, right? What is work is done and encourage them not just to say what they think might be the desired answer, but really in as much gritty detail as possible. Where is the friction? Where are things hard? Where where are you having to work around the reality of what's happening? That's such a cool component of that, that I'm, I'm not sure we've called out before. Well, it's difficult to do because the workers 
are scared because they think their manager will punish them for doing their best they can under the circumstances. And it may be that their immediate supervisor knows that they're doing it the best that they can under the circumstances, doing what anybody else would do in that situation. But as we move further away from the front line, it becomes less and less understandable. And definitely after an incident has happened, it's a clear-cut case of that somebody has intentionally not followed the rules and then they could get punished. And that's why I was part of the team that redesigned the Just Culture processed in BP. And that redesign made an enormous difference to the understanding of the company and the oil industry of incident causation, where we took the original Just Culture diagram and tree with, you know, with the words like violation and negligence and unsafe acts and turned it into a number of questions asking, were the procedures clear? Was there sufficient resource? Was the equipment confusing? Those kind of questions. And then over 18 months, collected the data and then actually showed that to the senior leadership who then could see that out of 350 cases where it looked like people were not following the rules or looked like people were doing unsafe acts, that most of the time it was caused by the context in which they were working, that they didn't have enough resources, that the procedures were unclear, that the equipment was confusing, and that anybody else would have done it under those circumstances. And that data had an enormous impact within BP and also in the oil industry, to the extent that we actually published it in an academic peer-reviewed journal. I read a quote of yours as in some of my background research for this that I really liked that seems to fit with this, which is that you said at some point, people come to work to do their best, right? Like, And the assumption, the sort of old assumption that anything that goes wrong is a result of a person being negligent or incapable or lazy or something like that ignores the underlying reality that actually most of us show up to work to do our best. And that the problem is usually the system that doesn't support us as opposed to an individual doing something wrong or bad. Am I reading that right? Absolutely. I mean, everybody has their purpose Mm -hmm. and they they come to work to fulfill their purpose in, in varying degrees. But in every workplace, people have pride in what they do and are trying to do the very best. It reminds me of a study done in the rail industry where one rail company thought that the reason why drivers were slightly overshooting red signals on two-way tracks was because they were careless or bad apples or not paying attention. So what they did was they measured all the trains and gathered data to see, well, because they wanted to identify those bad apples, you know, those people who didn't care, those people who weren't doing their best, right? And what they found was that all the drivers were overshooting these red signals. So they went, oh, okay, well, that means that there's something else going on here. And so then they looked back and they also spoke with the drivers. And what they found was two things. One, that the drivers didn't know when the red lights were going to change to green. So they waited as late as possible 
before they started breaking. But the second reason was that there was an emphasis on obviously schedule and fuel consumption. So they also didn't want to unnecessarily break. And then, of course, the light turned to green or, or, or remain green as they were going past it. So they realized then that this was actually to do with the way the work was set up, not that they had people who were bad apples. And so what they did was they just added ahead of these really important signals on two-way tracks, they actually put in two more signals that then would give an indication of what this essential signal further down the line when it was going to change from green to red. So that's a case study in showing that people are trying to do their best because what the drivers were trying to do was they're trying to do the, what they had been asked to do by the organization. Hmm. I'm struck by something about that because to me, there's a link between that and the, the other story you told a moment ago about isolating a particular part of a pipe, which is that in both of those cases, the story started, the story we're telling ourselves started by us saying this one person or this one action is a problem. And then it ended by us understanding that actually there was a systems level effect that was producing this action. And in both of those cases, the link was gathering of data laterally to that case, right? Is you don't just look at that case, you look at all the other cases around it. And collectively, you try to get a sort of like almost an orthogonal vantage point on what's happening. Do you think that that is a requirement? Like, do you have to have larger scale lateral or orthogonal data to really be able to put into practice what you're saying? Like, is it possible to analyze the process of a single case out like separate from the broader context? I would say that you can have both. Mm -hmm. Telling stories is so powerful. So for example, one of the most powerful stories told within the oil industry about, you know, what is human performance and how do people make mistakes is the, the story about filling up your car with gas. And it's a rental car and you're in a different country and you end up filling the car with diesel instead of gas because you're not used to the differences in color, of the, either whether it's blue or green, it's black, it's different in different colors in different countries. But of course, there's been a design piece here put in that in fact, in most cars nowadays, you can't actually put in the wrong nozzle for the wrong fuel. Okay. So that's a design that has been designed out. And that story, well, you can imagine in the oil and gas industry and the energy is a very powerful story. So we don't have to have all this data gathering and all this proof. We can just take that from other industries. I mean, why did the oil and gas industry change? Well, because it learned from the nuclear industry. Who did the nuclear industry learn from? Learned from the aviation industry in the 1940s. So I'd say that in a hospital setting, you don't need to gather all this data. You can bring information in from other industries and you can tell stories from the hospital setting that will make it relevant to people. Love it. Absolutely love it. I will post that up on our wall somewhere. I think that's I think that's incredible, right? We don't have to have everything nailed down. We don't have to wait for bad things to happen. We can proactively learn the best practices from other folks that also have to perform under pressure and adopt that into our emergency departments. That really is one of the big rallying cries of the Emergency Mind Project, right? The idea that performance under pressure of an individual, a team, or an organization is a skill separate from the domain that you are performing in and that you can learn these cross 
cross-cutting lessons and cross-cutting skills to make that work. Absolutely. And in fact, I'm living that. So I left BP, working for lots of different organizations and also organizing a conference, a medical conference, which is hosted by Johns Hopkins, which brings people from all industries into the Johns Hopkins Conference Center in Florida in from the 11th to 13th of January, 2023. And we'll have people from the paper industry, from nuclear, from oil and gas, transport, logistics, and of course, the very best people from simulations as well in healthcare. And so it will be this whole mixture of learnings from practitioners, people who've been in their companies working for 10 years applying these techniques and therefore bringing well, what didn't work for them and what did work for them. Uh, so, because of course, there's you know lots of bumps in the road, that's for sure. I love it. We will definitely make sure on the all of the Emergency Mind social channels that we ping out details about that conference. So if you're listening to this and you're even a quarter as excited as I am about that idea, don't worry. We will we will make sure that we get you details about all of that coming soon. As a, that's the Safety Two conference. That's what that's called. Yes, right? yes, it's called Safety Two Practical Applications, hosted by Johns Hopkins, uh, sponsored by Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in Saint Petersburg, Florida. Awesome. And actually, maybe that's a good time to, to formally define this because we, we've sort of talked about this a little bit, but haven't really defined it yet this episode. What is safety one versus safety two? Well, I'd say that safety one is a focus on learning from incidents. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good because we do need to learn from when things don't go to plan and we do need to learn to prevent major incidents. But on the other hand, if we just waited for things to go wrong, then we wouldn't be finding out all the other issues that happen in the workplace. So what safety two is, it's about looking at what happens when it appears to be a success. So, oh, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. It's all very successful. But yet within those everyday activities, there are issues. So I'll give you an example because it's a it's a really great paper from Suzanne Bentley at the, the Icon School of, of Medicine in Mount Sinai, New York. And what Suzanne did was after a successful emergency department pediatric resuscitation, it went smoothly, intubation happened at the you know, first time. She asked the team, well, what could you've done differently? Or and they went, no, everything's fine. Went really well. Marvelous. Nothing to see here. And then she said, well, what has been difficult in the past? And one of the residents said, well, actually, I've had a problem in the past in getting the right size endotracheal tube. And then the nurse said, well, actually, it's difficult with the setup of this endotracheal tube tray to actually find the right one. So what I did in this case is I ran next door to the medication room where there's a stock of endotracheal tubes and I picked out the right size one and I ran back. And that's the reason why we had the right size one. And everyone went, oh, okay, right. So it appeared to go successfully, but yet, in fact, we were trying to manage the fact that the endotracheal tube tray was confusing to us and difficult to find the right size. And so from that, they redesigned the layout of the endotracheal tube tray. So that's kind of an example 
in healthcare of look successful, everything's fine, but yet there's still something that you can do in terms of those precious seconds that I know you're very well aware of. And, and so to, to circle back and bring that home for it. So a safety one focus where you're learning basically only from adverse events would never have reviewed that case because from a safety one perspective, only good things happened. The patient was intubated on the first pass, things yeah. are good, you move on with your day. A safety two case or a safety two mindset is more about understanding what's going on in the soccer players in the field, even if there's no goal scored and says, okay, well, what really happened here and what does that teach us and what can we learn from it? And I love the way you approached that question or the the example that you're giving here where Dr. Brinkley did talking about, did a similar circumstance like this one look like, but that was difficult in the past and what happened there? Because that lateral thinking I think is really important. That's not something we're currently doing in my team, asking questions like, well, what's been like this, but different and difficult and why? Yeah. Well, it is. it really unlocks. That kind of questioning really unlocks the learning. So I used to go around and do this, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, the first question you ask is, well, what made the work difficult? And quite often, if they, people don't trust you or don't know you, they'll probably say, well, like, for example, pressure washing inside a large vessel. So you're inside a vessel with breathing equipment and you've got a high pressure water spray, which if you go onto your fingers, you lose the flesh of your fingers, right? So it's, it's really high pressure. So the person comes out and starts chatting with me about it. And, you know, what's making work difficult? Well, you know, I'm in the, this confined space and, but yeah, but everything's fine. You know, it's all, it's, you know, we've got all, we've done our risk assessment. We've got, you know, all our procedures, lots of, you know, huge ream of procedures and everything's fine, but that's still a work as imagined conversation. So then you say, well, you know, what's happened in the past? And they go, well, actually, in the past, we have had an issue with the hose uh, wrapping around my leg and causing a problem there. I go, okay, right. So then we have a conversation about how we could ameliorate that. And then the last question, and this is the one that if they really don't trust you, this is the one where you get the good stuff, okay? If there's somebody less experienced than you, what could cause a problem for them? And then it all comes out. Love that. I, abs- I absolutely love that. <laughs> because it's not, it's not you that's the problem. Mm. It's not, I'm not trying to point the finger at you. I mean, you're terribly experienced and you, you, know, you know everything. And yes, of course, there have been some issues in the past and you've told me them because I'm obviously this visitor and I'm asking you these questions and, oh, you're going to have to find something to say to me. But as soon as I say, some, you know, somebody new to the job or somebody less experienced, what could trip them up? What could cause a, a, a difficulty for them? What, what are the tricky issues here? And then, of course, it all comes out because they know that you know, nobody's going to blame them for doing a workaround or not following the rules. It's, this is just something that, well, you know, that we need to explain to new people. So that works very well. That's amazing. When you're doing this kind of uh, a thing or when you're coaching other teams to do this kind of thing, do you take that literally? Do you recommend that they actually just walk through those three questions or is it more of like, a, oh, oh yes. here are like we train people to do it. And in this case, the person talked about how there was issues with the fitting of the breathing apparatus and how it fitted some people and not fitted others, which is very serious if you're 
in a closed environment where there's no air. And and, and so, for example, in another case, there was a problem with actually getting into the vessel because of all the breathing equipment. And instead of taking a different type of breathing equipment that was less safe, in fact, there was a, a kind of an escalation. And in the end, it was worked out that the work could be done without sending a human into the vessel. It was a, it was to do with digging out catalyst out of the vessel. So, but, but that's because these kind of questions were being used across the company. And when people were raising their hands and going, we think there's a, an issue here, that instead of being asked to do the best they could, they were going, oh, right, okay, well, thank you very much. Okay, well, let's look into this and, and find out what other sites are doing. Because there's a lot of asking other places that have similar issues, what kind of solutions they have. And then you have quite quick solutions. So it doesn't mean that the piece of work doesn't get done for a few months. It actually just means that you've got a, a relatively short delay. You're really being building a culture where it's safe and rewarded to talk about improvement, adaptability, and change, right? Because I think sometimes in medicine, we have the opposite culture of that, which is that our culture sort of rewards the idea that you're doing everything humanly possible in an inhuman situation or, or something like that. Right. And it's like, that's like the reward is like, you get to say, ah, well, but we're doing all this. And, and I think that shift to saying, actually, like, these are issues that we can and should be addressing. And if we ignore them, bad things are going to happen. Like that's a, that's a big cultural shift in there. When you were doing some of the initial transition, as you were talking about, did that drive come from well, I don't know where did that drive come from. What was it? What was it that allowed that cultural shift to happen in a meaningful way? The support of senior leaders, <laughs> senior leaders, consistently role modelling, consistently talking about it, explaining work as imagined versus work as done, explaining a more modern view of incident causation, explaining that when people do things unexpected or make mistakes, that it's mostly because of the context that they're underneath, under, and telling stories like these kind of stories, and therefore making it okay. And in fact, more than okay, making it expected for people to speak up about these difficulties in the workplace. And what it takes is consistency. That's the biggest piece here, is that we can explain this to, to senior leaders and then they can move forward with it. But whenever there is a problem, like there is a, some sort of incident, they have to remain consistent in responding when things don't go to plan. For example, you've got a leader responding very supportively when people say, we've got a problem with scaffolding or we've got a problem with isolations. Okay, they go, oh, right, okay, great, this is really helpful. But then imagine that there's a big power cut. Well, what they were trained to do was to say, has anybody been hurt? How can I help you? Rather than there's a power cut, who's accountable and who are we going to hold account to this and how quickly are you going to get the machine working again? So quite a big shift mm -hmm. away from accountability and blame to support and learning. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that accountability disappears. Of course, accountability doesn't disappear. But in the heat of the moment, talking about accountability is a bit premature. Yeah. I have a very visceral memory of a few years ago now. We were in the middle of 
rather complicated resuscitation. And my charge nurse came in and said, Hey, just so you know, power is going to shut down in about you know, five or six minutes, we just got word from the city, there's some sort of a problem. And the response of my various team members at that point, I think really illustrates this this story that you're describing, because there was a subgroup whose first question was, okay, well, which patients are on ventilators and what backup power are they connected to? Because that's sort of the most salient version of like, who's hurt, right? Mm -hmm. There was a subgroup that said, okay, let's finish this resuscitation and then we will regroup and tackle the next problem. There was a subgroup that instead said, well, why, how is that happening? Like who's going to turn the power back on? And you know, those are like good questions. Like who, who, like when's the power going to come back on is kind of important. As we were standing in that emergency department doing that life and, you know, limb saving work, it's actually completely irrelevant what the answer to that question is, right? Like I don't have any ability to turn the power back on, but what I do have the ability to do is organize my team around the subset of problems that we can actually focus on. And I think that was a really important cultural teaching moment for us in that resuscitation, because it gave us the chance to say, Hey, it makes sense that you're upset. It makes sense that you're concerned the power's off. Also though, like we have to tackle what we can tackle first, and then we have to move forward with it afterwards. But that's not, I think, how I was trained or how most folks are trained. Absolutely. And that's the issue is that people have been conditioned to kind of jump into this kind of, well, well, whose fault is this? Rather than saying, right, we've just got to move forward. How can we support each other to to manage this situation? Dan, I want to to ask one other question as we're sort of shifting towards the end of our time here together, which is another quote of yours that I've read that I'm like just so curious about. And you said in one of the articles that you sent me ahead of time that certainty is the enemy of learning. Oh, yes. Oh, what's that about? That like, I was like, oh yeah, I'm writing that down. That's awesome. Tell me more about this. Well, so when we're talking about some complicated situation going wrong, people could have a very strong opinion of what happened, who was responsible, and it everything all seems so clear in hindsight. But yet, in reality, if we actually asked questions about, well, what were the precursors, what were the, the different influences that, that people were under, we find a much richer and bigger picture of what really occurred. So, this idea of being certain. I'm absolutely certain that the train driver, Bob, was careless. Well, now what we're, we're not going to actually look into the number of red signals passed. We're just going to let things carry on as they are. So this questioning attitude, and I, sometimes I call it curiosity, I find that the most effective leaders that I have met in the different industries that I've worked in have been the ones who've had this very open questioning attitude and all the time admit that they do not know the answer. So they are the least certain people I have ever met. And I love that because what it means is that they're always wanting to understand things and always coming from a place of enormous humility and vulnerability. Because traditionally, we would think that senior leaders would know all the answers and have this amazing vision for how things should be and always know what is going on perfectly. But the most effective and, well, powerful probably is probably the right word, 
our leaders are the ones who are the most vulnerable, the most humble, and the most curious. Well, so much in that. I just thank you for that. This is an incredible lesson. I want to, as we draw to a close here, offer a chance if you're interested to issue a challenge to folks listening to this, whether or not they're they're operating in the emergency department or downrange somewhere or on a sports pitch or whatever it is. When folks listen to this, what do you want them to do differently tomorrow? The one thing is that when things don't go as you expect them to go, to rather than to jump to an individual and to say, oh, well, they didn't, they made a poor choice or they didn't do it right. Just have a think about what made sense to them at the time. Because by looking at that, then we can understand how to improve the situation that we all are in. I love it. Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It was an absolute honor to have you on. And I know folks are going to learn so much from this. So thank you. Well, Dan, it's been great. I've had lots of fun speaking with you. So thank you so much. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right, good luck out there.